This is a broadcast of Holland United Church of Christ. At Holland UCC, we seek to open the mind and engage the heart. We are a community of justice, peace, and affirmation in Holland, Michigan, where everyone is welcome to the table. I know we're still getting settled, but we want to get things started because we are out of here at 5.30, so we've got a lot to cover in that time. So, welcome. Uh, My name is Stephanie Rodriguez. My pronouns are she, her. I'm getting choked up because... (laughs) started as a hint of a spark of an idea in our um, monthly justice action team with Holland UCC. (laughs) And I'm looking around at the faces of some of my members and I'm telling you, we had no idea it would grow to this capacity. This is is beyond anything we thought could happen. So thank you and welcome to today's panel. Um, I'm going to jump right into things because we want to get things going. So first, a thank you to the Holland UCC Justice Action Team for the hard work everyone has put into this event to make this happen. Um, but we would not have this much attention without also our incredible co-sponsors. So I would like to thank them as well. First um, is Hope Church. And we so apologize that you were missed on our program. Um, there's always something. Uh, But Hope Church, we do thank you. Thank you, Hope Church. (laughs) Other co-sponsors, all one body, out on the lakeshore in room for all. Co-sponsoring churches, Douglas Congregational UCC, First Presbyterian Church, First United Methodist Church, Grace Episcopal, Holland UCC, and Hudsonville Congregational UCC. Just one note, and then I will pass things off to our moderator here. Um, At least some of you, when you came in, had some note cards on your chairs. We probably did not get to the ones, uh, though maybe we can pass some note cards around to everyone else. Um, At 4.45, we will pass around a basket, collecting note cards, write some questions down for our panelists. We probably won't get to all of them, especially considering the size of our crowd, but we will get to just as many as possible and we will start with the ones that are either repeated or feel especially relevant to this conversation. So write your questions down, we'll collect those around 4.45, and that portion will start at five o'clock. Again, we end at 5.30, so I'm gonna jump right into it. Um, I will welcome Sonrisa, she is our, uh, her pronouns are she, her, and she is our moderator for today. Um, She is the Director of Student Ministries at First UMC. Everyone, mind make sure I'm speaking into this loudly and clearly. Is this okay? I tend to mumble. I do get a little soft, so please give me heads up when I'm speaking too slowly or too mumbly or too softly. Thank you. I'd like to introduce our panelists. So we have Barry Blanstra, he, him, retired Old Testament professor at Hope College, Reverend Bethany Joy Wynn, she, her, 
Palliative Care Chaplain in the UCC, Christina Breen, she, her, Vice President of the Board, Ottawa Area Center for Pride, David Myers, he, him, social, social psychologist, and Reverend Jen Adams, she, her, Rector at Grace Episcopal Church. Welcome, panelists. So to get things started, this question is for everybody. Can you share with us a little bit about your early experiences in the church? Was there a point when you began to wonder if would you be accepted in your church or loved by God based on your identity and your beliefs? So I grew up in Seattle as a Presbyterian evangelical. Uh, we can't hear you. What? <laughs> I grew up in Seattle, in a Presbyterian evangelical home. I memorized strings of Bible verses. I went to a Presbyterian evangelical university in Spokane, where I've been a trustee for a quarter century. And that tradition carries on in me today as I begin each day with Bible reading and prayer. And that's the spiritual uh, formation that I have had. And I did not experience any difficulties of the sort of I grew up in the Episcopal Church. I'm a lifelong Episcopalian. I grew up outside of Detroit. My family was pretty churchy by uh, suburban Detroit neighborhood standards. Uh, my parents were in the choir. We went pretty much every Sunday. I had to be in the kids' choir whether I wanted to or not. Uh, and the Episcopal Church had been involved in the civil rights movement. Uh, that was still very much in the air in my childhood. Uh, our congregation had a female priests on staff when I was about seven, I think. Uh, so I grew up with uh, women and ordained leadership as normal. Um, I left the Episcopal Church for a while during college. I went to Kalamazoo College, which I don't always say in groups this large in Holland, but I went to Kalamazoo College. <laughs> I'm the one cheering in the basketball uh, stadium when Kalamazoo is there. I'm the only, well, there's about seven of us yelling, go for it. <laughs> so that's where you've heard my voice in, in this community. Uh, for a while, I tried not church. I tried various denominations. I circled back to the Episcopal Church, knowing somewhere inside of me it was home. It's a combination of liturgical, sacramental worship, uh, room for mystery, room for not knowing, along with an engagement in issues of social justice. Those are all a part of my formation and very much a part of my ongoing life with the church. I have never honestly wondered, I thought about this question a lot, uh, but I have never honestly wondered about whether or not I was loved by God. And I'm grateful that I've never wondered that. Now, I've had issues with God at times. <laughs> Perhaps I should have made more room for vice versa, but I've had issues with God at times, mostly around issues of human suffering. And so that's been kind of the nature of my wrestle with the divine. But it never occurred to me that God would ever not love me uh, or anyone else. God is big, broad, merciful, tender, loving, strong, um, forgiving. I really don't think God is capable of not loving. Um, 
worked for a long time locally and also in the larger Episcopal Church on issues of inclusion. Uh, and while there were moments of wondering how all of that was going to play out, uh, that's a sentence that has three books probably of, of words behind it, wondering how it was going to play out, I have always felt like we were going to get there. And I still do. In ways in which we're not, we'll get there. In ways in which we're barely holding ground, let's hold it. Um, but I, while being honest about those possibilities uh, of not getting there or of rejection um, or acceptance, I don't let those settle in as deeply as a very stubborn determination to help us, uh, all of us, in whatever our settings are, keep moving. I'm Barry Banstra, and I was raised on the south side of Chicago in a dense CRC environment. Church, school, family, all motivated uh, by the common principles. Um, I never felt out of step with that community. Um, I was fully accepted, and I've always felt that way. Um, I'm married, three sons, um, and I went on to school um, pursuing an interest in biblical studies. So I, after uh, graduating from the University of Illinois, um, by the way, I uh, deliberately did not go to Calvin or Hope. <laughs> that was a very conscious move on my part after going through Roseland Christian Schools and Chicago Christian High School. Um, and I'm very glad I did. But then they dragged me back in. After <laughs> Illinois, uh, I went to Calvin Seminary and got my ministerial degree there. From there, I went on to uh, graduate school uh, to get a PhD in Old Testament studies. Uh, really loved that, enjoyed that decided the ordained ministry is not for me, uh, so I went on to teach. And after some 43 years of teaching, a year and a half ago, I uh, went into retirement from Hope College. And the tipping point for me, um, the issues we'll be talking about this afternoon, came in 1975, when the official CRC adopted a report called the Human Sexuality Report that marginalized the gay community. And we lived with that report for, what, almost 50 years until last summer, the Synod of 2022, decided to take that report and weaponize it, if I can say so. Uh, they looked to make it official doctrine of the church to marginalize um, the gay community uh, and gay marriage. So that really motivated me. I go to a wonderful uh, local uh, church, Congregation 14th Street, but a few of us there decided that we couldn't stay mute on this. And so we've been working for uh, a number of months now to formulate a response uh, to Synod's decision. And that has drawn me in to the study of the texts uh, and the issue as a whole. Uh, and so let me just say that I am so grateful that an event like this 
can happen and is happening. It is so important, I think, whatever your personal stance on certain issues, um, we need to show our support, I think, for the gay community. Thank you for being here. <laughs> um, gosh, thank you so much for being here. This is really, really a joy. Um, my name is Bethany. I am ordained in the United Church of Christ, but I grew up here in West Michigan in Grand Rapids, very much in the Christian Reformed Church. Um, both of my parents, grandparents on both sides, very, very long tradition of Christian Reformed Church. Uh, connection. Went to the Christian schools and Calvin for undergrad. Uh, I did not have the self-awareness that maybe I should even consider a different thing. I had a good experience though. My my whole upbringing was one of a very clear path. Um, I, I was part of the family tradition. I knew I was dearly loved. I knew um, that God loved me. I knew that my family loved me. It was, I was very privileged. Um, I felt very safe and it worked for me. I didn't have any questions or concerns about my beliefs or my identity until quite a bit later in life. So after graduating from college, um, within about six weeks time, I married a man. I uh, began working at a neighborhood organization and doing a lot of community outreach and networking. And um, I was an AmeriCorps member, a lot, of, a lot of very diverse people that I was involved with. Uh, and then it was 9-11, uh, 2001. So a lot happened in my personal world and in our national and global world. Uh, and I just felt like my religious upbringing had not adequately equipped me for the complexities of the world. Um, I was encountering people and ideas and uh, fears that I didn't have good answers for or um, understand maybe how my faith would would carry me through that. And so um, I, I was prepared also to, to kind of bail on God for a while because I thought maybe God was too small for all of that. Turns out that's not the case. Uh, but the, the framework that I had been raised in had just not asked hard enough questions uh, in my experience, or I hadn't been listening if they had been asked around me. Um, so I my first coming out, I say, was coming out of the Christian Reformed Church, and I, I had to have my spiritual journey uh, outside of the church for a time, and then um, found my way in, in the desert, which is where all good wandering can happen, um, in Southwest New Mexico, and I made a very dear friend who continues to be a good friend, um, a gay man who was a person of faith, and he listen to my journey and to my questions and to my wonderings and to my concerns about the potential smallness of God um, and just had such great compassion and curiosity for me and journeyed with me and then one day his husband invited me to hear him preach at their local United Church of Christ congregation and I fell in love with the denomination um, so I have been on that spiritual journey ever since so yes my first my first coming out was of that denomination um, and I'll get to it more later in a different question, but my, my second coming out, by the time that happened, uh, I had already been through this sort of spiritual um, journey to insist on being in a very um, affirming and uh, justice-seeking faith community. Uh, so that was a gift that, that kept on giving later. 
I'm Christina. Uh, my pronouns are she, her. Um, I probably like many but uh, people here uh, grew up in the Reformed Church uh, and um, my parents were divorced when I was nine years old. Um, my mom, who was, loved our church, um, was asked not to come back uh, because she got divorced. Um, so early on, I knew that the organized churches, um, while my mom had a love for Christ and, and had this desire to be a part of a church, um, one of the things that I saw was like how some a church body could like turn their back on people. Um, I, at that point, I stopped attending church myself. I, I really had no desire to go. Um, my father forced me to attend church uh, whenever we visited, uh, and I saw the same kind of thing from his church. It was, it seemed like all were welcome, but then it was, but are you? Um, and I knew that like, I was in my early teens, I knew I was struggling with a uh, some internal things that I couldn't really put um, uh, put a finger on. Um, obviously, uh, it's 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 something that you know when you struggle. Sometimes you you just you you don't know how to put put words to it. Um, myself, I was later. I came to find out um, what I was struggling with was a gender identity that didn't align with my assigned uh, at birth gender. Um, I was away from the church for a long time. Um, I ended up meeting somebody who would eventually become my future ex-wife. Um, and uh, I, she mentioned that she was active in the Baptist church. Um, I had been feeling a calling in my life um, that I know it was God knocking on the door of my heart. And um, I had been missing something a lot of my life. And um, prior to um, meeting her, I had, um, I had accepted Jesus Christ as my savior. Um, but I also, I had my ins and outs with God because I was struggling with something that I didn't know what it was and it wasn't being shown to me. So, um, I had eight years of pure health, uh, in marriage that I, in, it was, it wasn't that it was her or it was me. It was that I was struggling to try and identify with who I was, process my religion through with God, and also trying to keep a marriage afloat that I shouldn't have been in in the first place. Um, and I, unfortunately, I, I, I regret some of the decisions I made in my marriage, but ultimately, um, one of the other things in the, the faith that I was in my faith walk, I also saw that the church that I was attending again 
was not a welcoming church. And it was, it was tough because, again, still struggling with who I was and seeing that the church was not there to like help me. Um, in uh, probably about six years ago, um, I started to look more into trying to figure out who I was. Um, Caitlyn Jenner was most recently, uh, at that time, was coming out as being trans. Um, and I didn't really know what that was. Um, so I started doing a lot of digging into it. And I really was like, the, the struggles that these people that identify as transgender, I was like, this really fits with where I'm at in my life. And this fits with um, where I was at. The problem was, is I also had all this growing up in the church knowing like people in the LGBTQ community were like really pushed away. And I was still feeling this real like deep desire to have God in my life. I had accepted him as my savior. And it was how can I you know, how can I have this relationship? Well, um, it was uh, shortly after my coming out um, that through just a turn of events, uh, I happened to come across uh, my neighbor who lived across my street, uh, across the street from me all my life, um, was the pastor of Hudsonville UCC. And so um, I ended up going and checking them out and uh, I've since, uh, I, I've, I'm a part of their open and affirming team. Um, and I try to do mission work through them out to other churches that might be looking to become open and affirming or speak with congregations or members that are um, looking to see like, hey, you did this in Hudsonville of all places. <laughs> how, you know, how can we make that move or, you know, and that sort of thing. So um, it's, I've, I've now come to like, I have a good relationship with God. I'm also a part of a church that doesn't turn people like myself away, that they accept and uh, affirm who I am. So. You can applaud for anybody else. Come on. Actually, Christina, my first question was for you, actually. Sorry. So, my first question, and you just gave a beautiful story but about your faith journey. Is there anything else you'd like to share about why your faith journey merged from CRC and Baptist to UCC? So, one of the things that... Um, that I think most people that maybe um, we're seeing in the world today is that there are several church communities and church denominations that are not listening to the real words in the Bible. They take, sometimes they take words for, they're not, they're not taking context. It's, it's, and they're, putting spins on it. I feel like the reason I ended up in a, the UCC, um, I, the church specifically, other than Pastor Dan, 
um, was the fact that it's it's a church denomination that as the overall denomination had they allow each church to operate individually. So there are churches within the UCC that are not open and affirming. Um, and there are churches that aren't, that are trying to move towards that because they recognize that there's value in affirming all in the, in the LGBT community or other marginalized communities, people of color, um, people of a disability that might be marginalized by their own, you know, in their own churches or... So um, one of the things that in the Baptist uh, church and in the CRC, while I saw that there was so much preaching about how God loves you and God loves all, I didn't truly feel like they were like, well, God loves you and God loves you, not you, but God loves you. Sorry, I don't mean literally. <laughs> I'm just saying. So, and it's like, how how can how can these churches say that God is love and but also not love all? And the thing is, is I felt like over the years, it's like these churches that unfortunately you see these mega churches that are out there. And this is just something I actually heard of this weekend. It's like, do you actually want to be that mega church? Because those mega churches, it's like, are they truly living into God is love and and uh, that kind of a message? You know, I I've struggled with um, understanding how all of this can, you know, how the the rights and wrongs of this faith and that faith, but I feel like it really starts to, it just needs to start with God is love, God calls us to love one another, and that in the end, he will be the ultimate judge. Thank you. My next question's for Barry. Do you want to get the mic over towards you? <laughs> so Barry, you taught Old Testament theology more than 40 years at college and seminary. What does the Old Testament of the Bible have to say about being gay and about same-gender relationships? Well, uh, a couple facts to begin with. Um, <clears throat> the Old Testament says nothing about gay marriage. Um, and the Old Testament says nothing about being gay. Um, the word homosexuality and homosexual is not found in either the Old or the New Testament. In fact, you may know this, um, it uh, was invented as a word late in the 19th century, and the first time it appeared was in 1892. The technicality there is that it's a translation of a German work on medical conditions. And so that's, uh, that's uh, where it came from. Um, what I'd like for us to do is think a little bit, you know, about the one text that is always drawn upon in conversations uh, about sexuality and gayness, if I, if I could. Um, there's only one text in the Old Testament that does this. Leviticus 18.22, for reference. Let me read.
And then I'd like to say a couple things about it. I won't get too uh, nerdy or geeky about it, you know, <laughs> with the Hebrew and all that. Kind of stuff. Um, but I, I want you to hear it. It's very short. In Hebrew, it's like five words. Okay, and so it says, Leviticus 18.22, and a male must not lie with the lyings, the layings down of a woman. That's all it says. Um, it is an abomination, is how it ends. Now, there's a lot we could say about a number of things in the verse. I'd love to spend 20 minutes just on that word abomination. It's not what you think it is, I would claim. But a couple of things here. Um, this is the go-to clobber verse of those who object to, um, to the gay community, if you will and gay activity. Um, it comes from the book of Leviticus, and Leviticus is a handbook for priests. And so, thanks for mentioning context. Everything hangs on the context, doesn't it, when it comes to determining meanings. There's a great irony here. Yes. The book of Leviticus talks about all kinds of things, you know, like... Um, Skin conditions want to keep you uh, in quarantine away from the community. <clears throat> the priesthood, qualifications for being a priest. <clears throat> How to do right sacrifices. Almost all of those, in fact, all of those rules are completely dismissed out of hand. Except for Leviticus 18.22. Um, the great irony, I think, um, of that verse but if we think about that verse, and I think it's very important to, again, put it in its context, I think there's, there's one way of reading it, which is typically done in, if I might call them, traditionalist, literalist communities, more conservative Christians, if you will. And that is to read it literally and think that the words are the meaning of the text. Well, I would like to propose that there are other ways of reading this text. One of my interests in doing this is this. We'll often hear this text uh, given as a definitive refutation of gayness, okay? And that, you know, the conversation stops, nobody knows what to do with that, and everybody accepts it. I'd like to present to you a different way of reading this text. And here's what I think we need to do. We need to see it in the context of so the, the book of Leviticus, the, the book of Levites, the priests. I think it'll just drop it here. And so the priests have this rule book, and they're trying to establish a community. And the priests are also the ones who wrote the first book of the Bible, a good part of Genesis, and in particular, the first chapter. And uh, to quote a Star Trek phrase, <laughs> the prime directive uh, of the Israelite community is what? To be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And so that is preeminent. Okay, let's look at Leviticus 18.22. 
Let's talk about male to male sexual activity. Think about that in connection with the prime directive. And so the priests, I think, are making a rule against the, um, the squandering, if you will, of reproductive resources here. Uh, there is nothing productive that can come from that sexual encounter. And so that's a waste. That's a waste to them. Um, I don't think it really primarily has anything to do with um, any kind of unseemliness about the relationship. I think it's very interesting to look at the context of that verse and the immediately preceding and following verses, which also have to do about building the tribe. So, for example, just two verses before this is the rule, a male shall not sleep with a woman in her period. Now, that's not for hygiene purposes, but we would all know that would be unproductive. A woman can't be pregnant at that time, so don't waste the time and resources. <laughs> um, and also, um, one can um, cite that there is no rule about female-female relationships or sexual activity. Nowhere at all. It's addressed to men to get on the job and build the tribe. <laughs> so I think it's wrong for us to take a verse like that and use it in the way that it's most often used. There's a lot more that could be said about the Old Testament and issues of sexuality, but what I really want to do is equip us with an alternate interpretation of this verse when people bring it up to refute uh, this. Thank you. Our next question is going to be for David. So David, I understand that you once understood sexual orientation as a moral choice. What led you to change your mind? And how do you engage with folks who think the way that you used to think? So, uh, as the senior person on the panel, I uh, was a teenager in the 1950s, a young adult in the 1960s, and it was natural in my environment to think of people engaged in same-sex relationships as morally depraved, making unfortunate lifestyle choices. Many people, including many of us in this room, have changed our minds, and for many people, it's because not of what they know, but who they know. For me, I'd say it's more of what I came to know. I have a vocation of reading and reporting on psychological science for a large number of people through an introductory psychology text. And part of my charge is reading and reporting on the science of sexual orientation. So the first of two things that I learned that caused me to change my mind was that sexual orientation is clearly, for the overwhelming majority of people, most clearly so for males, not a moral choice. It is an enduring natural disposition. And we know that from three lines of research. First, there's research on what influences sexual orientation, genetically, prenatally, and in terms of brain structures. We've learned a lot. Secondly, there are certain traits that you would never have guessed, like spatial ability, on which gay and straight people show some subtle differences. 
that are clearly not in the realm of moral choice. And third, it is tremendously difficult, well nigh impossible, for people who have a well-established sexual orientation, and again, most clearly so for males, to change that. We've seen this in the failure of all, so many of the ex-gay organizations led by ex-gays who are now ex-ex-gays, <laughs> who are saying that actually, truth be told, they never saw anybody change within their organization. And this is backed up by a lot of research, which is the basis for a number of states and countries now banning sexual reorientation therapies. For example, there was not long ago a study of 1,612 uh, Latter-day Saints, Mormons, uh, who were, uh, had experienced same-sex attraction. 66% tried to change that in this study they reported. Most didn't like their sexual orientation, wished it were different, tried whatever, therapy, prayer, ministry, what percent changed? What percent did a reversal, a 180-degree shift? Zero percent. So the first fact of life, as I came to appreciate, is that I was wrong. Sexual orientation is not a moral choice. It is an enduring natural disposition. And the second thing I came to understand is exactly what Barry Banstra has just been talking about. Uh, I knew about those seven clobber passages. I didn't realize, I think, that they were seven among 31,102 <laughs> verses in the Bible. Uh, and I didn't fully appreciate the context uh, in which they occurred, many of them having to do with prostitution or child exploitation or adultery or uh, idolatry, none of them having to do with long-term covenant, same-sex loving partnerships. And then I read a stack of books by people from my part of the world, the Reformed Evangelical world, people associated with Fuller Theological Seminary, or Jim Brownson at Western Theological Seminary, or Dubuque Seminary, or Princeton Theological Seminary, which all pictured a moral witness of the entirety of scripture that was radically at odds with my early life judgmentalism about gay and lesbian people. So why did I change my mind? It was because I confronted the science of sexual orientation and I became more aware of biblical scholars giving me an enlarged view of the witness of scripture. Thank you. Jen, you're my next up. All right. So Jen, how are you able to reclaim the Bible as a source of inspiration in spiritual growth, especially since so many people have been harmed by certain texts. Sort of continuing on a theme here. <laughs> you got it. An unfortunate theme, but a real one. Um, well, I haven't had to really reclaim the Bible because I never held it in a way that it could be lost. I think that that's important. Um, I uh, experienced the Bible as inspired by God, stories of God's people trying to understand their relationship to God, their relationships to one another, trying to understand themselves, how to be in community, faithfully so, uh, how God uh, is, who God is. People in the Bible are messy, and their understanding of God, as inspired as it might be, is still human, because they are. Those people didn't always get it right. 
But I do believe that at the heart of scripture, there is a story, the, the ark, as you said, David, of uh, God's love for us, our being created in the image of God. Uh, various cycles of creation, sinfulness, redemption, love, uh, to which we are all a part. Um, now we know, I know, uh, that people have been deeply harmed and continue to be harmed by certain texts. They're harmed by people who use the text in harmful ways. It's not the texts themselves that's hurting them. It's the way in which the texts are held and weaponized, as you said, Barry. Um, so knowing how to handle those texts, as has been, I'm sitting between a, a biblical scholar and a social scientist, which is really handy. You know? <laughs> <laughs> can say what he said and then what he said. <laughs> so spend time with these texts, dig into them, read what people have read about them as, as they've looked at the various layers to this text. Don't make any decisions based on Leviticus alone. That's a bad rule in general. Um, know why they were written, what was the intent, what was uh, the situation of the community in that time. Also, talk about more texts than the ones that have been used in such harmful ways. I actually had that number written down, David. There are over 31,000 verses in scripture I Googled that this afternoon just to be sure I was right. But I didn't need it because David said it as well. So there's seven clobber verses, right? Seven. There's over 31,000 that aren't in that category. Now, not all of those are ones I'd use as go-tos. But there's a lot more to run with here than those seven. Nor are those seven in any primary structure within Scripture itself, right? It's one verse within Leviticus and others scattered throughout, none of which are in a position of priority. So for every verse about uh, women remaining silent in church, right, just to use an example, there's one verse, I think, about women remaining silent in church. There's a story about the Samaritan woman, which if you're in the Revised Common Lectionary, we heard today, right? There's a scandalous outcast with whom Jesus has the longest conversation in all of scripture. It's honest, it's theological, it's biblical. That woman then went and preached to her people and many believed, scripture says, because of her testimony, right? So why aren't we talking about that? <laughs> Help change the conversation that's happening when we are talking about scripture because Here's a scandalous outcast that did some pretty good things. Jesus helped that be so, didn't ever use the language of scandalous or outcast, by the way, and helped change the world in, in that experience. And so, help change the conversation as much as you are aware of the, the texts and the various layers to them. Spend some time with those other 31,000 verses and and change how the conversation itself is happening because good things, holy things, redemptive things can come of it. Thank you. Christina, you're up. Yeah. Oh, hang on. Christina, you are not up. Bethany, you're up. <laughs> <laughs> Bethany, 
How has the church both harmed and helped you as a queer person of faith? I really appreciate this question. Um, so I, I mentioned earlier that my first coming out was out of the Christian Reformed Church. And at that time, and for the next decade, I identified as a straight woman still, and very much a strong uh, developing ally for the LGBTQ community. Um, so I attended a lot of different trainings. I, I sought out people's experiences that I didn't identify with. Um, and then in a church setting, so uh, at the United Church of Christ pre-synod conference of the Coalition for LGBT Concerns, now called the Open and Affirming Coalition, I'm surrounded by basically all gay, lesbian, trans, queer, I use the word queer, apologies to those of you for whom that's a sensitive one, I use it to identify myself at this point, so I have to include it. Um, but I'm surrounded by this, this community of Jesus-loving and following uh, persons who are part of this open and affirming coalition, and finally come out to myself and go, oh boy. <laughs> and then I had gay pastors taking me out for sangria and tapas and praying for me and taking me out to you know dance to get out of my head and into my body and just remember who I am. And I was completely surrounded by the extravagance and the weirdness of that community and the love. Um, and it, it just completely affirmed this sense that God loves all of her weird and wonderful children. Um, and that God shows up so specifically in those communities of people who have known what it's like to be excluded from that celebration and affirmation and love. Um, at a training, a UCC event that I went to once, um, uh, Cameron Trimble mentioned, you can always get your way if you have enough ways. And I loved that, because uh, I grew up in a way where there, there was really just the one way, right? And then I had left the denomination and thought that I left my faith because there didn't seem to be enough ways for God to maybe show up or be acknowledged or for me to show up or be acknowledged. Um, and there's always more ways. Like, there are so many ways. And the queer community, the black community, like anybody who has not been part of the, the white supremacist, patriarchal, homophobic, transphobic dominant narrative has insight and gifts and love to, to pour forward. Um, and it's just such a blessing. Um, so in terms of, yeah, the... the blessing and the, the helping of the church, I would say that my faith has been deepened and strengthened because of this queer church community. Um, I have continued to seek out those voices and theologies, and there's lots and lots of scholarship, as has already been indicated, um, but just those personal relationships and worship experiences has been transformative. I also want to speak to the harm. Um, as I said, I was very privileged. I was very dearly loved. I never really questioned the, the love for all people, as has also been indicated that, you know, if God is love, then it's love for all. But I feel like the church has really harmed um, my parents, for example. I think it failed them. Uh, they loved me dearly, but there was a season there where they had no idea how, because I 
was leaving my husband and gonna date women now, and they just were not equipped to navigate that. Um, some of you know my parents. They are the most delightful, loving people. Uh, they're probably watching this. Hi, Mom and Dad. Um, and, or will, later. Um, and they, they just had no idea how to navigate. Uh, and it, it became easier, but I feel like that's a, that's a space where harm just keeps happening because people are not equipped to journey with the people they love when something feels hard because it doesn't fit the way that they've been taught. So I'm gonna just say again, there are always more ways. There are always more ways. And you can always have your way if you have enough ways. And God certainly does. So. trans woman, how do you share your knowledge that you are cherished and loved completely by God, just as you are, with people who believe differently? Yeah, um, I think one of the, the biggest things is, is knowing that in my accepting Christ to be my Savior, um, one of the things like we can always look at is that God knows who we are. God knows from the moment we're born, what our whole life is gonna be. And so I was still created. I still had my life given to me. I still had the rocky roads that I had to traverse. Um, one of the things like that I hear so often uh, in religion is that it's a choice. My choice was coming out. I knew that it wasn't like, I wasn't just making a choice to be trans. Um, I'm gonna tell you right now, it's a heck of a lot easier to be a white cisgender male um, than to give up my privilege and become a member of a marginalized community. Um, I, I recognize like that, that can be very hard for people in the faith community to hear that, well, you're living a sin and your life is a sin. Well, that's because you, the pastors that you hear preaching, I hate to say the wrong message, um, they're listening to that and they're being led by that message. They're not hearing that I am a child of God and my I live a life that I try to exemplify him in everything I do. I glorify God as I can. I try to push the the um, my message that I can give. I'm not the most biblically versed person on this panel. Um, I think I got some competition from these four. Um, so the, the thing is, is I, I feel like the, for me, it's, I always, the, my path was always known. God knew that I was going to be this person. It, I, and that, that might be hard to wrap your head around, but I, I think what, what's the God moment in this is that when I came out, my dad literally said some of the most vile things to me. Uh, and 
I know timing is probably bad. Christmas Eve isn't always the greatest time to but, you know, at the time, I, I went home and I was just bawling because I, I felt like coming out was like, that was one of the hardest things to do and I needed a parent. My mom was, has been passed away since I was in my mid-twenties. Um, and so it was tough. Um, and what I realized is that God put people in my life at that moment. And leading up to that moment, my fiance is here. Um, and these people were put into my life to help me to continue through and deal with like that whole transition process and know that no matter what, God was still there for me. Thank you. So panelists, you guys prepared some amazing answers. We're not gonna get to those questions. Um, now is the time for Q&A. So I have a bunch of questions from the audience. So whoever wants to take this one, just grab the mic. In your opinion, is the city of Holland making progress? I have nothing to say about Holland. <laughs> Yes. Do you want to give a little more? Yeah, I'll give a little more than that. So I've sat in conversations in this room for almost 20 years, or whenever this room, when did this room happen? 20 years ago, years-ish ago. Um, Grace, uh, in the last 25 years, uh, became the place where PFLAG lived, and the place where Holland is Ready was born and so was out on the lake shore and gender safe. Um, we gathered in the Undercroft, uh, which is Episcopalian for basement. <laughs> it just sounds a little better when you say Undercroft. Uh, the first three pride festivals happened there. Uh, there was not a non-discrimination ordinance at the time that included sexual orientation or gender identity. Um, we were, we were differently careful. Um, we were differently aware. We couldn't be out in the same way that we, we are now. Um, and, and there's a, still a road ahead of us, but I think it's also so important that we acknowledge how far we have come. Um, and there's, I look around the room, part of what's slightly overwhelming is to see how many of you have been involved in helping the larger community change and become more inclusive. And, and that, was, that was a haul. Um, and, but significantly uh, ahead of where we were. And so I do think it's important that while we are in the midst of new waves of struggles uh, and, and different communities feeling the struggle in different ways and that we stand together in that, that we also pause to say, uh, we have made progress. We're in a very different place than we were, which also means there's a larger community of support for those who need it, whether it's you as an individual or, or you as a community within this community. Don't go it alone. And you don't have to go it alone anymore. You can even come out of the undercroft at this point and, <laughs> and, and say, hey, we need you. Uh, 
because there's a large we and a large us. And so, yes, progress has been made. Is it all the progress that needs to happen? No. Um, but yes, and thank you to all of you and many, many outside of this room who have helped that happen. So if I could just add one local and one national word. Uh, as a local example, Hook College a year and a half ago extended its non-discrimination policy to include gender expression, gender identity, pregnancy, and sexual orientation covering all college programs and activities, including employment, admissions, and access to educational opportunities. Uh, and, that's a, uh, and, and that was, that was surprisingly a, a unanimous vote of its yeah. board of trustees after years of controversy and discussion and argument mm -hmm. about this. This is a reflection of national progress, however. In 1996, 27% of Americans told Gallup they were supportive of same-sex marriage. Last year, 71% did. Uh, more than 90% expressed uh, support for non-discrimination in hiring. And there's an enormous generation gap. Uh, these, these aren't even issues anymore among most younger Americans. And generational succession is our destiny. So there's no reason to be optimistic. <laughs> So the next question we have, in recent years, the voices of those who oppose queer inclusion in the life of the church have gotten louder and angrier. Why the unchristian anger? What are they afraid of? <laughs> That's a great question. I don't know. But I, my, the insight that I'm going to offer is just going back to that one path versus many paths thing. Um, you know, I think that there are many people who have been taught that there is a way to understand things or to engage their faith or to engage as an American or fill in the blank. Um, and so the idea that there are more ways than what they are aware of and comfortable with is scary. Um, even if you have an adventurous spirit and are seeking other ways, it can be scary. So I think my, my instinct is to first often have compassion for people with just the, the trepidation about new ways and about um, those of us who have the privilege to be able to, uh, to continue to be beacons for those other ways. Uh, I have previously in a, an All One Body event used a metaphor of a campfire about you know wherever you are in this wilderness of trying to navigate, build a campfire or attend a campfire that's already there, or join somebody's campfire and tell a story, right? Like let's keep making those places that invite people, that show that we're not alone, that the we is big. Um, and for those like myself who have little to risk at this point, uh, continue to be that beacon of, of extravagant love. Uh, make it weird. Like, tell people that you love them. Show up for people in ways that maybe put you out of your comfort zone a little bit if you have the capacity to do that wherever you are. Um, if you, you know, work in a car dealership, if you work in the church, if you uh, work in a school, like, find, find ways to be that beacon uh, to continue to show that there are other ways. And I think that, that will, will help to create a little bit more movement that we're seeing. 
I was going to say uh, something else too. I feel like it's uh, it also comes from a little bit of a potential uh, loss of the thought of loss of privilege um, or the fear of being seen from like if you're an accepting like uh, like if you accept the queer community or if you accept members of X that if you're like if our friendship was based on that co not acceptance and if all of a sudden you have this like aha moment that you got it there's that fear that that friend of yours may turn on you and I think we live in a community that I mean we are founded on community we truly in a lot of ways are dependent and need to have others like we need to be aligned in some way and if all of a sudden our friendship can't be aligned on that we go wow um if i if i take this stand for my trans friend or my gay friend or my black friend i might be seen as soft and i might lose these friends i might lose these family so in a lot of ways, we feel like we can't step forward and challenge somebody because all of a sudden we'll be seen as somebody other than uh, that, you know, that we might be seen as uh, weak. Um, or if, like, let's say you have conservative beliefs and all of a sudden you just take this one stand there, all of a sudden your conservative friends go, well, you must be a liberal. You know, because you feel like equal opportunity or equal rights or whatever. So I think there's a lot with that, too. So you gateway three into the next question. This is to everybody, not, not putting on spot. So suppose that, suppose that next week this room is filled by those who believe in the same love of God and the desire to follow and obey God but they have come on the opposite of inclusion. Is there a middle ground? Can both sides continue to believe, or is there right and wrong? <laughs> I think there's a middle ground, uh, for me at least. Uh, I've written a book, uh, subtitled, this is published back in 2005, The Christian Case for Gay Marriage. And coming from the having evangelical roots, uh, I wanted to communicate with that audience, and I think it's possible to do so because we do share so much in common. We share in common our love of Scripture and our wanting to honor Scripture and let it be a guide for our lives. Uh, many of us share a commitment to marriage as an institution that is conducive to human flourishing, for which there's much research to support that, and we share an interest in the healthy future of the church. And it is a plain fact that the church's anti-gay image is driving young people away from the church in large numbers. Uh, Notre Dame sociologist David Campbell and uh, Robert Putnam, a Harvard public policy expert, have written about this at some length. And recently there was a survey of 18 to 29-year-olds nationally that found that 39% said that, quote, negative religious teachings about and treatment of the gay and lesbian community was a primary reason for leaving their childhood faith. The increase in religious nuns, N-O-N-E-S, 
for those of us who are going to be here next week in this uh, counter to this, uh, is something that we share in common. And so if we're kindred spirits and wanting to see the church flourish and marriage be honored and scripture be listened to and, and discussed, I think there's common ground for us to have. relationship and and open to that but I don't think there's room for middle ground in terms of some of the conclusions that we're talking about um, because I I would lose uh, my marriage or my identity and then it's not common ground it's just a ground that I'm willing to meet you on in order to allow you to hold your ground <coughs> And I don't think that that's ground that should be held. I don't think that's ground that is loving or merciful or in the long run uh, productive, for lack of a better word. Um, and I don't think that creating a ground on which I can also uh, be married, uh, along with those who would disagree with that, does anyone harm. And so I think that is a ground we should be seeking. Um, I don't think it should always be those who are coming uh, from a place of marginalization or uh, lacking rights who should be ceding ground in order to be in community with others. Again, I am very open to conversation, relationship, very hopeful uh, about the kind of ground we can be on together. But it, it, it won't be ground that asks me to let go of that which is me. Well, I'd like to really reinforce one of the things that was just mentioned, namely that both sides have a common text. Of course, you know, student of the biblical text as I am, I would think of this. Um, and, and, and see that as a way to bring people together. <clears throat> that if we can agree that there is a plurality of interpretations of texts, we need to sit down together around the text and give our reasons why we read the way we do. And hopefully that'll be founded on some serious Bible study, some biblical research, calling upon experts of being open to hearing how other people read the text. And that has the advantage of not focusing directly at the other person, but both addressing something in common together. Um, so I think there's potential there, and I think the people that um, I'm so happy to work with at 14th Street have the same notion that what we really need out of the church the CRC in particular, coming into this uh, synod of 2023 is the acknowledgement that there is a plurality of interpretations and, and that nothing is entirely settled on these matters. And we should come together over that um, and, and work together. Thank you. So we have a question. We've referenced the Old Testament. What about gays in the New Testament? 
what do you got? What do I got? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> I'm glad that question was raised. Um, read the Gospels. Look at the story of Jesus. There is not one verse. The Old Testament's got one at least, right? But the New Testament Gospel, Jesus, has no mention of gay marriage, gay relationships, nothing of the kind. Instead, as we've talked, I think, together, the overall message is one of love and acceptance. And so we've got to refocus on that. Read the Gospels. There's not one mention in Jesus' mouth um, about being gay or gay marriage. That was simple, wasn't it? <laughs> We had a request for someone to explain they, them, and use their pronouns. Someone who uses they, them program, uh, pronouns should explain they, them pronouns. <laughs> so I don't use they, them. Um, but I will say our, I would say uh, the easiest uh, way to look at it is somebody who doesn't identify within a, either of the gender binaries. Um, they may not identify female, even though they might be assigned female at birth. Um, and they might not also say that they fit into the male binary. So, and I know this, it's real hard because we live in a binary world. Um, so it, it's, it's hard to, without intent, uh, pronouns, it, it doesn't seem English correct to say they referring to a single person oftentimes. Um, or there are situations where it does. But I think, uh, I would say for most individuals, um, everybody's gender identity is unique to them. So even for me to say for a non-binary, they, them individual, everybody might not be the exact same in that gender binary. Um, there's a lot of like gender fluid um, that they people might, uh, yeah, who identify as a they, them, with, might say one day I, I feel feminine, uh, other days they feel masculine. Um, so there's gender fluid within inside of non-binary genders. So I think ultimately um, just trying to, you know, educate yourself on pronoun usage. Um, there is an excellent resource if you, um, to go out um, it's called the Teaching Transgender Toolkit. It is available online, and it helps like understand pronouns, a lot of dead terminology that's no longer used in, uh, in society that a lot of uh, people maybe, even as in my age group, were growing up with that are like no longer accepted. It's like, that's, that's a no-no. Um, and so I would say 
the biggest thing is, is if you encounter somebody that identifies themselves with a they, them pronoun, feel free to like, help me understand the they, them better. You know, um, I think as long as they're willing to talk about it, I, I think one of the biggest things that we can do as a society, too, with pronouns, is I, using them. I, introduce yourself. Don't be afraid. Pronouns, I know in media right now, uh, there's a lot of my pronouns are, you know, this, and they're using it in a slanderous way. But if we can normalize pronoun usage, it doesn't... It, it, it makes it so much easier for us to like say like, oh, they identify as non-binary or they, them, and say, oh, I know what that means, you know? So, and then, you know, if you do know, help others that may have that same question. I just, yeah, wanna add encouragement to practice yes. with anybody and everybody that you just don't know. like. Oh, they were ahead of me at the grocery store. You know, I, I work in hospice and palliative care, and so if I'm going to talk about any of my patients, I'm going to remove any uh, identifying characteristics of them in order to honor their privacy. And so they're always a they, and it just gets easier the more you practice. So I would encourage. So unfortunately, we are almost at time. So I'm curious, any closing remarks, any parting words you would like to give everyone. How about we just kind of go down the line? Um, I, sorry, I, I feel like this is definitely something that could have been four hours long. I know everybody would have been like, oh my God, these seats are incredibly uncomfortable. Um, thank you all for coming. Um, I think taking one thing out of this is um, just don't take everything that you're hearing in the media as, uh, take it with a grain of salt. Check your facts. Just, or reach out. If you have questions, you know, I, I, the biggest thing is, is educate yourself too, so. I don't want this to stop. This is really, yeah, I know. I love this. I, I am so delighted. And I just want to give a shout out to the people behind us. Uh, the choir loft, so to speak. Many of them are from my home church, so I'm, I'm delighted to have them cheering on from back here. Um, as I indicated, I, I work in hospice and palliative care. So I, I spend my days uh, with people who either are navigating um, chronic pain, chronic illness, or have received a terminal diagnosis. Um, and over and over and over, um, I am struck by just the power of being present and caring. Um, you know, I told the, the story about my, my friend in New Mexico who accepted where I was in my spiritual journey at the time, which was pretty angry and pretty hurt and feeling kind of like I, I had been uh, disappointed by the tradition I'd been raised in. Um, and he just kept engaging with curiosity and with compassion and with kindness. And uh, I just, there's a, a quote that my fellow chaplains and I refer to often, and maybe some of you have heard this, but I'm gonna just offer this to you as, a, as my closing words, um, but shared from Parker Palmer. 
And this is just an, an affirmation and a blessing that no matter who you are, no matter where you are, no matter where you show up or work or live or serve or who you're talking to and in the company of, um, that you can love extravagantly, whether it's, maybe it's even your own self, right, that you're starting with. But Parker Palmer says, the human soul doesn't want to be advised or fixed or saved. It simply wants to be witnessed, to be seen, heard, and acknowledged exactly as it is. Blessings to you. Um, well, um, biblical interpretation issues, Hebrew language and biblical research and context, all of that's well and good and should be engaged. But what I saw reinforced this afternoon is that the most important thing is to hear stories, hear each other's experience. Um, that really strikes home. And I want to thank my fellow panelists especially for for having the courage um, to share that with us. Uh, it's extremely insightful and much, much appreciated. So thank you. There were only seven people here 20 years ago, so I'm feeling pretty good about that. <laughs> Maybe 17. Uh, no. um, I guess, first of all, thank you to all of you who have helped our larger community get to where we are. One of the things that we can all continue to do is um, support one another on this. Wherever you are, someone has been there, right? Wherever I'm headed, maybe one of you is already there. So keep looking around and make yourself available and know that there are those of us in the community absolutely willing to listen, to help, to support, I can't pull up the verses quite as well as Barry can, but together we can we can do something, right? Um, so take some time to look around and so soak up and know that there is uh, support support out there. Also, show up, show up for pride. It it matters to see a lot of people present and in support. It really, really does more than you more than you know. So. Take 15 minutes if you want, or hours on that Saturday and show up. Support out on the lakeshore. Support those congregations that are working it out right now, or people that are stepping away from places that have been home for a long time and seeking a place. Know that there are places to be. And it, it doesn't even have to be for a long time, but if you need to be fed for a while, you're welcome. Um, I, just, I just think we need to be in this together and we're in another round where it's hard, and and um, maybe that doesn't end, but it it can get better, and it does get better, and it's better even when it doesn't feel better if we're in it together. So thank you, and I hope that we can continue that um, that offering to one another. Since crafting uh, what I call the Christian case for gay marriage nearly 20 years ago, I've been invited to make that case in talks uh, on many occasions. And I conclude by trying to summarize the essence of my argument with these five points. Number one, it seems pretty clear now that sexual orientation is, as I indicated earlier, an enduring natural disposition. It is not a moral choice. And telling people that it is a choice has throughout our recent history caused a great deal of pain, 
frustration, guilt, suicide, potential loss of faith, and failed heterosexual marriages. Uh, second, we're social animals. We all have a deep need to belong. We flourish when we're connected in close, supporting, caring relationships. That's healthy, and that's something the church and society needs to encourage. Third, as Barry Banstra has uh, indicated, and Jen Adams as well, the Bible has little, if anything, to say about sexual orientation as we today understand it. And today's Reformed evangelical scholars, like Barry Banstra, are finding biblical warrant for supporting covenant partnerships for all as part of the biblical mandate. Fourth, family values, a priority on covenantal relationships and a high view of scripture can coexist with full and equal participation of gay and lesbian persons in the culture and in the church. And finally, and this I can say with greatest confidence, attitudes and assumptions have been in a state of rapid transition and that's going to continue. And I think there's every reason to expect that given the growing public understanding of sexual orientation, given the, uh, that gay marriage is now legal and happening everywhere and that attitudes tend to follow social norms over time, given that gay folks and trans folks are out and that impacts family and friends who love them and changes attitudes, and given that, what I referred to earlier, the generational change is happening inevitably, and there's this huge generation gap, I think the changes of the last 25 years are not going to be reversed. I think we can see where the future is headed, and there's every reason for optimism from our perspective. <laughs> once again to our panelists and moderator. I think this has been a really enlightening um, and just a really positive experience for everyone here. So we're really grateful for everyone showing up um, and supporting this event. Uh, for further resources, check out the back of your programs. There's information on there, books and things. Uh, this will also be available on YouTube as well as the Holland UCC channel as a podcast. So you can check that out as well. One more hand for our panelists and thank you for coming. invited to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. streaming on Facebook. You can also watch these messages on the Holland UCC YouTube channel. And for more information, how to get involved or to support our work, like us on Facebook or visit hollanducc.org.